I'll give you some scripture references in a moment or two, uh, but we are continuing. And you'll forgive me if I, I've got the sniffles this morning. You'll forgive me if I keep wiping a little bit. Uh, I hope you don't mind that. But we're continuing in our series of studies on Lord, teach us to pray. And I want to begin this morning by asking a question. I wonder how many, if we took a record of our prayers, that have received a definite answer. What would the tally be, do you think? Would it be 100% or 50% or 25? Perhaps 10 or maybe 5%? What do you think it would be? Notwithstanding, of course, that some of those prayers we have prayed, maybe perhaps for years, uh, will be answered by God in His perfect timing. Notwithstanding the other prayers we have prayed, will never be answered because they were foolish prayers, unwise prayers, ill-informed prayers, and only the grace and mercy of God prevented us from getting an answer to those prayers because God was good to us and didn't actually answer that prayer request. But leaving all that aside, I wonder how many prayers we have been praying or have prayed in the past. We have felt that we just did not receive an answer. And it's not because the prayer was in itself wrong or foolish or mistimed. It was perhaps wholly legitimate. It was honorable or even necessary. But still, no answer has come. Heaven seemed like brass. Seems to be when you pray that particular prayer, your words bounce off the ceiling and hit the floor. What possibly could be the reason for this? Maybe actually that God longs to answer that prayer, but He isn't answering it because something is blocking it. Perhaps God has put a hold on it or saying a definite no to it. What would be the reason for that? Well, this morning I want to give you several reasons. This is not exhaustive. It's not all of the reasons, but just a few perhaps. And just maybe one of these, maybe the reason why that prayer is not being answered. And so we'll begin, I suppose, with a very obvious hindrance to prayer. We must deal with it first. Simply this, sin. Sin. Isaiah 59, the first two verses, says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. So there's a very definite reason why Israel at that point were not having their prayers answered. They thought that God's arm had grown short. They thought that he couldn't answer. They thought that his ear was heavy and that he wasn't even hearing their prayers. But that was not the case. And God tells them here that that is not the case. Actually, the problem and the solution lay within themselves. All they had to do was own up, admit that there was sin 
and deal with it and put it away. And had they had done that, God was very willing and was longing to and wanted to actually to answer their prayers. Psalm 66, verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Nothing could be plainer than that. Now, the problem is because of our fallen human nature, we are very, very selective in dealing with our sins, are we not? Very selective. There's a story in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And the story goes something like this. Samuel comes to Saul, who was king. and said, God wants you to do something. He wants you to go to the Amalekites and utterly destroy them. Because the Amalekites were the ones, when you were coming out of Egypt, when Israel was coming out of Egypt to the Promised Land, they ambushed them and really spared and showed no mercy to them. So, God wants you to go to the Amalekites and kill every last one of them. And not only that, kill all of their livestock, their sheep, their donkeys, their camels, their goats, everything. Wipe all of them out. And Saul says, okay. Prophet has spoken. God has spoken. I will do that. However, listen to what happens. 1 Samuel 15, 7 to 9. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Now, J.R. Miller, an old, old writer, he comments on this. And he makes this observation, and I think this is good, and I want to pass it to you this morning. He said that we too can be like Saul and the people of Israel when it comes to dealing with our sins. We can put to the sword a lot of things. Things that we find easy to do that would be, we feel worthless to us, but we keep alive that which we feel would be profitable to us and valuable. We can kill all the Amalekites, but we can spare Agag. We can spare the big one, the favored one. We can take all the worthless and useless and despised sheep and goats and camels and kill all of them, but keep the big fat ones, the healthy ones, the ones that we want to use for our pleasure, for our profit. And often we do that with our sins. We put to the sword, we can put aside the easy ones. The ones that, well, we're tired of that anyway. Well, we're not getting much pleasure out of that anyway. But the ones that we feel are profitable to us, that are pleasurable to us, that we feel, well, I don't really want to give that up. I don't really want to put that to the sword, so I'll hold that back. 
and we spare Agag, and we spare our flesh, and we hold something back that God said, put to the sword. And you know, if you read the, the rest of that story in 1 Samuel 15, you'll see that Samuel came to Saul, and he said, Saul, did you do what God said to do? Did you put everything to the sword? I says, well, yeah, but we, uh, we spared Agag. And, and, so, and Samuel says, yeah, and, and what's this I hear? I hear bleeding of sheep. Uh, well, why am I hearing bleeding of sheep? Did, did you not put them to the sword too? Well, well, we, we spared some of the best of them. Why did you do that? Well, well we're going to sacrifice them to God later. And Samuel says, God has rejected you for being king over Israel. He's rejected you from being king over Israel because of that. And he took Agag, Samuel took Agag, and he put him to the sword. And he says, God, in effect, he's not going to answer your prayers anymore. He's rejecting you because of this. So we too, to a greater or lesser degree, we too can put aside a lot of things, put to the sword a lot of Malachites, but we can spare the Agax, the big fat sheep, the healthy looking ones, the ones we feel will be useful and profitable and pleasurable to us. But if it's the ones that God has put in his finger on and says, I want you to destroy them, then if we don't, he's not going to answer our prayers. He's not going to say he's going to reject us like Saul, but he's not going to answer our prayers. And so a very obvious thing, and you could extrapolate that into a whole lot of areas in sin, but a very obvious thing is sin. And all of us know what we mean by that. And all of us is areas in our lives where from time to time our conscience even bothers us about and we know it's that attitude or that habit or that this or that that or that the other and we don't deal with it. And if we refuse to deal with it and God's urging us to deal with it, then he puts a blot on those prayers. And we're really not going to go much further in our spiritual lives until that's dealt with. And all of us has been there at some point or other. It maybe just was a stinking attitude, or maybe it just was a habit, or it maybe just something that, that maybe for others is quite legitimate, but for us it's become sin because God doesn't want us to have it in our lives. And if we don't deal with it, then it seems to be that God said, okay, you're not going much further with me until you deal with that. And then, Moving from that, another maybe perhaps not so obvious hindrance to our prayers being answered is stewardship or how we deal with the poor. Proverbs 21.13 Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. That's a very powerful scripture because that gets right to the very heart of our stewardship 
Now you understand that everything God has given us, that we're stewards of it. We don't actually own it. God has given us to take care of it and to do kingdom business with it. Now we get pleasure, we get enjoyment out of it, and we get blessed, but ultimately it's for His kingdom. So we need to understand that we're stewards of all that we possess. And actually, one day we'll be accountable for it. And so whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will one day cry himself, but shall not be heard. So how we deal with those that are poor and in dire straits and in difficulty and, and how we deal with them. We'll have a reflection on how God answers our prayers. It's as serious as that. Psalm 113, verses 5 to 9. Who's like the Lord our God? The one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. So here we're talking about this great, almighty, lofty, high, majestic God who enthrones the very heavens. But yet, that same God steps down and looks upon the earth. He raises the poor from the dust, and He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of their people. He settles the barn woman in her home as a happy mother of children. So God is very, very concerned about the poor, about the widow, about the orphan. In fact, that very psalm, whenever Hannah, remember the one who cried in the temple and Samuel thought she was drunk, but she was crying out of the bitterness of her soul because she so wanted a child, a man-child. And God heard that cry and gave her that wonderful little son called Samuel. And what did she do? She rejoiced. And she sang a great song of rejoicing. And she actually quoted in 1 Samuel 2 and 8. She sang from that very psalm. She said, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and lets them inherit a throne of honor. He settles the barren woman in her home as a happy mother of children. And in fact, when you come to the New Testament... Whenever Mary, whenever she was having the Christ child, you remember her great song of rejoicing, her Magnificat, it's called. And she actually quotes from that psalm too. And nobody was as poor as, as Mary and Joseph were. In fact, when they went into the temple to offer up a sacrifice because of the birth of their son, they couldn't offer up any more than two turtle doves. I mean, that was just about the, the smallest offering they could bring because it was all that they had. They didn't have a bullock to bring. They just had two turtle doves. God was so concerned about the poor in the Old Testament that He embedded into His many, many laws for Israel, He embedded into those care for the poor. And because they were an agricultural people, a lot of those laws was to do with the agriculture of the land. For example, when it came harvest time, 
They were not allowed to harvest the very corners of their fields. It had to be left for the poor. If the reapers went up the, to, to cut the corn, if some fell behind them, they were not allowed to bend down and pick it up. It had to be left for the poor and for the orphan and for the widow who would be waiting on the sides, waiting till the reapers would go past and then they would come behind and pick it up. And that's the story of Ruth, isn't it? That's what happened, Ruth and Boaz. If grapes fell from the vines while they were picking them, they couldn't lift them. They had to leave them for the poor. Uh, whenever they would shake the olive trees to get the olives, they couldn't shake it twice. They couldn't get back over it again. Had to be left for the poor. God, every third year, the, the, the farmers, they had to give a tenth of their produce to the poor. That was the way that it was. God was concerned about the poor. He's not any less concerned about them whenever you come into the New Testament. In fact, Jesus, you remember, uh, Judas was the treasurer. He held the bag, the Bible says. And, and out of that, they were to give to the poor. In fact, on the night that Jesus was being betrayed, sitting around the Last Supper, and whenever Jesus said, what you do, do quickly, and he went out into the night, and the disciples thought, well, he's the one with the bag. Jesus must be telling him to go and do something with the poor. So that was a part of their ministry. That was nothing unusual in that. Do you think he's any less concerned about the poor today? And the injustice and the inequality and the orphaned and the widow, he's concerned. And we should be concerned individually and corporately as a church. And that's why we give to missions and organizations and, and people who want to help. Uh, preach the gospel, yes, absolutely, but people who's, who's got needs and try to help things. Uh, Billy there, for example, Billy's gone out to Moldova, he goes to Romania, he's done it for years and gives to the poor. He, he, he takes humanitarian aid out. Claire does the same in the Philippines. Pays for people's operations who can't afford it. Help the poor. And if we, if we stop our ears to the cry of the poor, if someday we're in the same position, guess what? God's not going to hear a prayer. Just so many scriptures. Let me just remind you, for instance, away, away in Malachi, in, in chapter 3, verse 8, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But how you say? But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse. For you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour you out such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, saith the Lord of hosts. The implication was they were withholding the tithes and the offerings, their land was being devoured by the devourer. He says, now if you give the tithes and offerings, he says, I'll open the windows of heaven, I'll rebuke the devourer for your sakes, it'll go better for you. Now, of course, the tithes and offerings coming in, apart from the Levites who, who had to be taken care of, but there was the poor and the needy and the widow and the orphan. All of that had to be done. So our stewardship is very important when it comes to our prayers being heard and being answered. 
and of her miserable and tight-fisted and stingy with God, guess what? few of your prayers is going to be answered because God just doesn't like that. James in James chapter 2 talks about it. He says, you know, it's easy if somebody comes to you and says, well, we'll, we'll go and be filled and be blessed. But he says, if you're not doing anything about that, you're not being doing anything practical about it, well, it doesn't mean a thing, does it? So he says, put some faith into that. Just don't say to somebody, well, go and be blessed and be filled and do nothing about it. Put some faith in it and do something about it. Thank God as a church we do do that. And thank God I'm trusting that all of you do something. And so our stewardship is important to and relates to the answering of our prayers. Another thing which is absolutely vitally important, and Martin touched on it just a moment there ago when he was leading us in, in the Lord's table, is unforgiveness. It's unforgiveness. This is a biggie. Nothing will prevent your prayers being answered more than unforgiveness. In Mark chapter 11, In verse 12 and following, it talks about Jesus and how the disciples, they had come out from Bethany and he was hungry and he saw a fig tree and expecting to get some figs from it. He went there and there was nothing but leaves. So in response, verse 14, uh, Jesus said to it, let no man eat fruit from you ever again. And the disciples heard it. And then a little bit later on, Verse 20, now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered up from the roots. Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered and died. And Jesus said to them, have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed, be cast into the sea, does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done. He will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. And, and, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Now notice how that Jesus links the issue of forgiveness with asking for anything. Whatever things you ask when you believe, Believe that you receive them and you will have them and notice how he links these two together and that's deliberate. He's making a real point here. And then of course in Matthew chapter 18 and of course we read this in another context I think probably was it last week 
And then in verse 15 of Matthew 18, Jesus says something before he goes on to the parable of the unforgiving servant, which we have read in another study. But notice what comes before. Verse 15, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. So it's not a case of he said this and she said that. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen and a tax collector. So the Lord here is talking about dealing with issues that needs forgiveness and repentance and apologies or whatever. And he sets out a way to do that. First of all, a one-on-one. Go to the offender. Talk to them. So it's a private thing. And if they listen to you and say, do you know what? You're right. You're right, I'm sorry. He says, good, you've gained a brother. But if it's genuine and you go and explain the case and they say, no, clear off. You're talking nonsense. He says, then take two or three witnesses. Go over it again. And if he still refuses, then... As a third step, go to the church. I would imagine in the first instance that would be to the leadership of the church. But then he he goes on a little bit further and we we need to see the context of this here. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, that can be taken in a wider, on a wider scope regarding prayer, which will be come to later, but, not today, but later. But in the strict context that Jesus speaks these words, he's talking about issues of forgiveness and unforgiveness. Now, the Amplified puts it this way. Matthew 18, 18, the Amplified. Truly I tell you, Whatever you forbid and declare to be improper and unlawful on earth must be what is already forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit to declare declare proper and lawful on earth must be already permitted in heaven. Now what does he mean by that? Well, if it comes to the point where the church has to deal with it, They can only deal with it in terms of the confines of is this something that's already permitted or unpermitted in heaven? How are we going to know that? We know that through the Word of God. So we can't say to somebody, now listen, here's an issue that's causing friction here. Now we just can't make up and say, well, this is our rules, regardless of whether it's the Word of God or whether it's allowed in heaven or not allowed in heaven. We would just say, these are our rules. So... That stops us from ending up like a cult or heavy-handed or manipulative or controlling and all those things. So if we say, well, no, you can't do this. This is not permissible. Well, we better have a good reason for that. 
not just because, well, we don't like it and we don't want it. It's got to be not permissible and improper in heaven. Or we say, well, this is what... This is what we believe, this is what we can do, this is how it should be, then it's got to line up with what is already permissible and proper in heaven. How are we going to know what's proper in heaven? Through the Word of God. Are you still with me? Now that's to stop us making up our own rules and becoming a cult. And you know how cults has all kinds of rules and regulations, nothing to do with the Bible, nothing to do with heaven, it's to do with themselves. And it's all a control thing. I mean, years and years and years ago, there, there was a thing called shepherding come into the church, and it wrecked havoc with the church. I mean, people's lives were controlled to the nth degree, where they worked, where they lived, how they got a job, everything, who they went with, everything was controlled. In other words, the idea perhaps was good at the start because the church was so loose, it was loose as a goose, and everything went, the end went, much like what it is today. And so certain church leaders thought, well, it would be the idea to tighten the thing up. Well, they tightened it up all right, but it's nothing to do with the Bible or heaven or anything. It was to do with them. It was their ideas. And it caused a lot of damage. A lot of people got hurt and burned in that thing. So you see, Jesus is saying here, when it comes to binding and loosing, technically, strictly, in the context of what he's talking about, is to do with, with, with discipline within the church and issues of forgiveness and unforgiveness and discipline within the church. Now, there's a wider scope in that, but that's technically what it's supposed to be about. It's the same. And if two of you agree on earth is touching anything that they shall ask, it should be done. That's also in the same context, being in agreement. It's also in the same context. All right. At the end of that particular, which we'll not read, obviously, because we've read it before, but when you read about the, the parable of the unforgiving servant, the one who, remember, who owed millions and millions and millions and he went to the king and the king for, forgave him uh, and then what happened after that somebody owed him just a, a few quid and he went and nearly strangled him and threw him in jail Sally was reminding me the other day when we were talking about this she reminded me about the bankers today the government has given them billions upon billions and billions and what have they done? they put tens of thousands of small businesses to the wall some of the small businesses only, only owed about 5,000 pounds they put them to the wall and they've been given billions which is a perfect illustration of what was happening here. But he said, the way towards the end of that story, should you not also have the compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the tortures until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So God takes the issue of forgiveness that's very, very big with him. Why? Why? Because he forgave us everything. All of our sins. And the cost to do that was the death of his own son. So if we say, well, I, I can't forgive, God says, well, I can't forgive you then. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, 
that you may be feared. In Hebrews 12, 15, it talks about lest a root of bitterness spring up from within. Unforgiveness can take root in our hearts and it's a bitter plant and it poisons your whole attitude and it seeps into every part of your life. You know, you're not with a bitter person five minutes till it comes out. It just, it just comes out, that bitterness. They may tell you they're not bitter. No, I'm not bitter. No, I dealt with that. No, I've forgotten about that. After five minutes, no, you really haven't, really. You're just as bitter as ever you were. Archibald Hart said, Forgiveness is surrendering my right to hurt you for hurting me. That's a good statement, isn't it? Forgiveness is surrendering my right to hurt you for hurting me. My brother Yun, the Chinese pastor, who wrote the book The Heavenly Man. He's written another book since called Living Water. It really is a collection of, of, of preaches that he's used over the years. And just reading this the other day, uh, I thought this was very appropriate for what we're talking about right now. Because this man's not writing in a vacuum. This man, some stuff happened to this man. He says, the first time I was arrested for the gospel in China was very difficult. Somehow in my heart, I thought that as a servant of God, I was entitled to special treatment in prison. I did receive special treatment, but not the kind I was hoping for. I was severely beaten until my whole body was covered in blood and bruises, and much of my hair was torn from my scalp. For a time I harbored bitterness against the man who had done this to me. But the gracious Lord Jesus taught me that there is absolutely no point in withholding forgiveness towards anyone, regardless of what they have done. Unforgiveness would only achieve two things. First, it would harden my heart and cause a root of bitterness to take hold. And second, my relationship with Jesus Christ would be damaged. And I came to realize that self-righteousness had risen up in my heart. In effect, I was saying to God... Everyone else should get what they deserve, but don't, have, but don't we have a special relationship with grace for me? He said, it doesn't work like that. And then he goes on to say, you may be reading this book and thinking, you don't understand, I have a right to feel the way I do. All this forgiveness talk is easy, but I have tried it and it didn't change me much. Other people have told me, you can't ask people who have been through the most horrific situations to forgive those who did these acts against them. You can't put this extra burden on the victims. People who think like this have never understood what forgiveness is all about. Forgiveness is not a burden, it's an offer. I have also had some difficult experiences in my life. I've had sharp needles jabbed under my fingernails until I passed out with the pain. My legs have been smashed by prison guards. On one occasion, my body was so destroyed that when my family members came to prison, they didn't even recognize me. They told the guards I'd brought out the wrong man. And only when my mother noticed my birthmark did they realize it was me. I've been lied about and denounced by other Christian leaders so many times I can't recall. Yet by the grace of God, I have freely forgiven all those who brought pain into my life. 
I know a pastor, pastor who had a great church. When things started to go wrong in his life, church turned against him, did everything they could to destroy him. Same pastor told me, he said, four church leaders got together and told me they would do everything in their power to run me out of town. He says, I was so hurt. I felt so rejected. He said, I couldn't leave the house for months. He says, I hid at home. Couldn't speak to anybody. I remember in those days trying to contact him. He never did ring back in those days. Told me later, he says, I couldn't face anybody, not even you. He says, people I thought were my best friends. He says, people I rescued from the clutches of Satan. He says, even people I'd cast devils out of <laughs> turned against me. And he says, you know, I felt so angry and so bitter and so hurt and so rejected. I thought, how can I live with this any longer? And he says, I really took it before God. And he says, God so dealt with me that that bitterness and that anger and all of that stuff left me. And he says, now, it doesn't bother me. He says, I could meet them in the street. I could shake their hand. I could talk to them. Wouldn't even fizz on me. But he says, it was only the grace of God did that. He says, if it had been up to me and my feelings and my emotions, he says, I felt like swinging for them. But he says, the grace of God touched my heart, changed my life. That's a testimony, isn't it? See, unforgiveness can be a destroyer. 1 John 1, we're going to close in a moment. 1 John 1, verses 5 to 7 and 9 to 11. We'll not read it, but you can read it. It talks about if, if we say we hate our brother, we are walking in darkness. In fact, they say you're worse than a murderer, but we're walking in darkness. Our eyes are wide open, but we're walking in darkness. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a really, really dark place, dark room, physically, dark. You can see nothing. You bump into everything. Your eyes is wide open, but you can't see. If you hit your brother, your eyes may be wide open, but actually you're in spiritual darkness, you can't see, and guess what? You're going to bump into everything. You're going to do damage. You're going to hurt yourself at the end. And often the person you hate is getting on the life. Could care less about you or what you feel. But it's you the one who's getting destroyed through it. So unforgiveness can be a big hindrance. Finally, the last one. Cause of time, I better quit quickly. Not, this is, this is specifically, this is, no, this is generally for men, specifically for husbands. All right. So all the ladies now is relaxing. They're saying, okay, preacher, give them, get them in the neck this morning. Don't miss and hit the barn door. All right. Now, don't laugh too loud, ladies, because I might get to you at the end. So, all right, be careful. First Peter 3 and 7. Husbands. Likewise, dwell with them, your wives that is, 
with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. Physically weaker. And as being heirs together of the grace of life, note this, underline it, that your prayers may not be hindered. Who would have thought not giving honor to your wife would stop God answering your prayers? But Peter thought that. Peter was a married man, by the way. He had a wife. He had a mother-in-law, too. <laughs> well, not, well, not even go there. Not even going to go there. <laughs> not honoring your wife. Hindered. Akupto. That's what the word is. Akupto. And it means to cut off, to hew down. It means to be thwarted and frustrated. I don't want my prayers to be cut off and cut down. I don't want to be thwarted and frustrated. But if I do not honor my wife, that's what's going to happen. Now, there are lots of Christian men, church-going men, even preachers, who do not in any way honor their wives. They're mean, tight-fisted, ungrateful, demanding, and they're just plain hard to live with. And all the ladies said, now watch what you say. And they think that by making their wives seem small and feel small, that somehow that will make them look strong and in control. Nothing could be further from the truth. A wife's submission to her husband is not based on intimidation or control or manipulation. It's based on admiration and appreciation. And if we admire and honor and appreciate our wives, guess what? They will submit. The submission is a word that's been badly, badly used. It's not twisting arms up back. It's not throwing on the floor and jumping on and tramping all over and you will do it my way or the highway for you and all this nonsense. It's nothing to do with biblical submission at all. We're heirs together of this life of grace. Heirs together. But isn't it interesting that God, and it's the same in the marriage thing with Paul, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, be cleave unto his wife, two shall become one flesh. The emphasis goes on the man more than the woman. It really, really does. And so God singles the man out here. I heard about one man. He says, my wife loves foot. Says, my wife. I heard about one man. Let me start again. He said, my wife says, I love football more than I love her. He says, that's unfair. I've been married to her for 36 seasons and nine World Cups. <laughs> Clever's only getting that now, isn't he? <laughs> now, wives. Seeing you were all laughing there. The Bible says that you are to be of a quiet and gentle spirit. Not like a fishwife, 
not haranguing and relentlessly nagging and grinding somebody into the dust. Not always forever finding fault. So you see, there's a balance in this, isn't there? Biggest emphasis is always on the man, but there's a balance in this too. A new widow was agonizing over what she was going to inscribe on her husband's gravestone. Should it say this or should it say that? So she finally came up with two things. Rest in peace until we meet again. <laughs> Dare help that man, eh? Heaven's not even an escape for him. <laughs> At a three-day conference for wives and pastors, one session consisted of testimonies of how the Lord had blessed them in their ministries and marriages. And one young preacher's wife, she stood up and she's quite nervous to give a testimony. She says, you know, folks, the Bible says that no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. And you know, my husband is one of those no good things. <laughs> she doesn't quite mean it that way, but... <laughs> so having laughed a little, to make the serious point again, Peter says, man, honor your wives that your prayers be not hindered. Now listen, this also implies, does it not? Because he specifically points out men. Does this not imply that the man in the home, the Christian man in the home is the one who should be doing the heavy load, heavy lifting when it comes to prayer? And truthfully and sadly, that's not the case. Not the case. Most women are the women who pray and do the heavy lifting when it comes to the spiritual things at home. It should be the other way around. I, I was speaking uh, at a men's uh, evening not so long ago in a church, and the guy who was running it, he told me, he said, David, the woman in this church leaves our men miles behind in spiritual things. Miles behind. And he says, I'm doing my best to try to get them going. It's a fact that most prayer meetings, the biggest majority, it's women that goes to them, not the men. That's a fact. shouldn't be, but it's a fact. And it is a fact that most women end up carrying their spiritual cons at home, and that shouldn't be either. It should be the men. And that's why very often then a woman becomes controlling because they have had to do the spiritual lifting in the house continually. And then they get into that mode and that mold where it becomes a way of life. Shouldn't be. Shouldn't be. It should be the man. Doesn't mean the wife shouldn't be praying. Of course you should, but it should be the man who should be the one who's taking the lead when it comes to that. And then finally, and we'll close, being selfish. James 4 and 3, you ask not because you, you ask not and do not receive because you ask amiss. Now, we, we, just, we just briefly just mentioned that we talked about this in another context, another message, so we'll not go into all of that. But 
We said that if you dwell in him and his word dwells in you, that will prevent you a lot from asking amiss. But we still can't ask amiss. Here's the reason. That you may spend it on your pleasures. In other words, selfish prayers. How many of our prayers are just plain selfish? Now, God wants to bless us and he wants to give us the desires of our heart, but only if it's for his glory. Now, here's, a, here's an example of selfish prayer. I could pray, Oh God, give me a thousand-seater church packed three services on a Sunday. That would be a very noble prayer. Who wouldn't want to see a thousand people come to church? Who wouldn't want to see three services on a Sunday? Who wouldn't see dozens of folk getting saved and all that? Who wouldn't want that? That sounds very good. But if it's not for God's glory, if it's for me, if it's so I can say, i got the biggest church in the whole area. Look at that wee struggling pastor down the road. He's not like me. Look at the big church I've got. Then that's a selfish prayer. And you could pray selfish prayers too. So we've got to pray, Lord, I really would love this. And then we've got to say, well, what's my motivation for really, really wanting this? Is it so that he may be glorified? Or is it I may be glorified? Is this to make me look good or me feel good regardless of what it's got to do with the kingdom? And if we think that way, it helps us from stop praying amiss. Thank God he didn't answer some of your prayers. Aren't you glad for that? Well, I'm glad for it anyway. You're not. Praise the Lord. So, things that hinder our prayers. And that's not all of them, but that's all we've got time for. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, help us to be circumspect when it comes to our prayers. Help, Lord, our motivation to be right. Help us, Lord, that if there's something blocking like sin or pride or, or, or something, God, that would, that would prevent you answering, help us, Lord, to see it. Put your finger on it. And help us, Lord, with grace and courage to deal with it and to put it away that you may be honored and glorified. And Lord, that that pipeline between heaven and earth is open. Lord, that the channels is fresh and flowing. And Lord, that we're seeing answers to our prayers. So Lord, we give you thanks today. We bless you for who you are. And we do thank you for all the prayers that you have answered in the past. Thank you, Lord, for doing things that we never even asked for. But you just blessed us anyway. We thank you for all of those times. So, Lord, help us, Lord, over these weeks and months, Lord, to, Lord, to focus and to draw close to you. And to be, Lord, as Clifford said earlier, to be in that secret place of the Most High. And to abide under your shadow. Because, Lord, that's the best place for us to be. It's the safest place. So we honor you and we give you glory in Christ's name. Amen.